Our emotions are designed, they're designed to inform us, not to direct us. There is no number you're ever going to get to that is going to heal whatever is going on inside of you. I think defining what it means to be a man is not possible. And, and when I say I don't think it's possible, I think I mean on a mass scale of agreement throughout societies. Oftentimes, anger is simply sadness masked. Because I feel like you never really stop growing. And if you have stopped growing, like you're already dead in the water. You know, stagnation is synonymous to death. You are now embarking on the Imperfect Experience. Hello, Imperfect listeners. It's your host, Luke West, back with another episode where we discuss masculinity and manhood more intentionally and purposefully. As a reminder, we have a Facebook group now to engage a little bit more personally with one another. Um, So if you're interested in that, link in the description below. Now, for my guest, it is writer, life purpose expert, and brand strategist, Mike Iamelli. With his proprietary sacred branding system, he's helped hundreds of people to connect the dots between their lived experiences to find the common threads that explain their subconscious motivations, unique genius, and life purpose. People use this work to explore identity and sexuality, finding their artistic voice, rediscovering themselves after a life-altering event, um, and much more. Mike's also the author of Enough Already, Create Success on Your Own Terms, link in the description below. On this episode, we discuss his journey to discovering himself and how gender roles have affected his same-sex marriage or not affected his same-sex marriage um, through just common everyday activities, their wedding, and much more. The societal pressures seem to be much different. Um, So if you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you took 30 seconds to press the follow button, subscribe, leave a review, um, and all of that jazz. Now, let's get into the show. Mike. I am Ellie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am it. excited to have you here. And I, I, I'm hinting something in your accent. Boston is my guess, right? Oh, you are good. Yes, I'm from Boston. What's your favorite Boston-based movie or Boston Mafia movie? Do you have oh, one? Gosh, yeah, sure. Um, I think The Town probably for a more recent one. Okay. I think The Town's pretty good. I haven't seen that one, but my favorite always is The Departed. Oh, sure. Or Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting yeah, also I mean, very good. I feel like um, Boston crime dramas was kind of a thing for like 10 years. Yeah. Well, are Matt Damon and, and Ben They're Affleck from, from Boston? Boston? Yeah, yeah, they are. Okay. Yep. That that makes a lot more sense. But I love Matt Damon movies, Born yeah. movies, everything. Mm-hmm. I think he's great. Um, but the first question I usually ask my guests is, who is one person, dead or alive, that you'd like to have over for dinner? And what would you cook for them? Oh, gosh. Well, I can tell you right now, I probably wouldn't cook. My husband would cook. Um, So that is just, I don't want to offend this person. Um, You know, this is just coming off the top of my mind, but I'd say F. Scott Fitzgerald for some reason. Okay. Um, Who's that? uh, The author of The Great Gatsby, um, a bunch of other books, well, four other books, and a bunch of short stories. I just think, um, you know, he's a really interesting guy. He um, is actually the grandson of... um, Francis Scott Key, the um, writer of the Star Spangled Banner in the U.S. Okay. And uh, he's just, you know, one of the most famous authors, um, had a really interesting, dramatic life and marriage, uh, lived through um, you know, the lost generation. I just think he's kind of a cool guy. Do you like to read? I do, yeah. Not as much as I used to, but I do. It's interesting how uh, has, has COVID kind of changed the amount that you read or – or no, not at all. Is it kind of just the same for you? You know, probably just the same, maybe even less. Honestly, I, um, for the past seven years now, I've worked from home by myself. So I'm used to having a lot of free time. 
Now okay. my husband is home three days a week. So that's changed things. So I feel like I probably have less free time than most people do just because I've kind of built my schedule that way. Okay. And I liked how you mentioned at the beginning that you said that you wouldn't cook, your husband would cook, which kind of just plays into the conversation that we're going to have is that you are in a same sex marriage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's conversations about, well, in a straight marriage, obviously there's gender roles. The man Mm -hmm. does the manly things and the woman does the womanly things, whatever the hell that means. Mm -hmm. But in a same sex marriage, what does that mean? So he cooks, like what, what is your take on gender roles how does that work in your relationship yeah well i mean clearly there aren't gender roles in our relationship and we're not um limited to the stereotypes that maybe many heterosexual relationships traditionally have and so it's more convenience based like i typically pre-covid am home during the day so i do laundry because that's something that's pretty easy for me to throw in and do while i'm working throughout the day or you know my husband really enjoys cooking it's very meditative for him So he does that. I tend to pick up around the house just because, again, I'm home all day. And my husband really likes to do the deeper clean because I think he's more of a detail-oriented, meticulous person. And so I think what's great is it kind of becomes more circumstantial. It's whatever is convenient. Yeah. And and that's the way... I believe it really should be in in it. And, you know, growing up in my house, there was definitely gendered roles. I did the lawn. I mowed the lawn. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of like the heavier type things. And even Mm -hmm. the jobs I applied for were when I was like in high school were labor intensive. Like I, I worked jobs that said, Hey, 50 pounds or more you can do. And typically, and I, I, I remember having this conversation a couple of times at that workplace was why can't girls do that job? We can lift 50 pounds or more. Like, why does it, typically men. And I'm, and I guess that, I don't even know like where that even comes from this idea of gender. I mean, I do kind of just Mm as society culturally. Um, but it is always fascinating to hear and see, especially in a same sex marriage where that there are no different genders. So while there's, I guess there can be different genders, but Mm -hmm. you're the same sex and how does that all play out? Yeah. And you know, I think with a lot of these things we've kind of learned, you know, it's both of our first same sex relationship actually. And we've been together now eight and a half years. So we've kind of over time adapted and learned, you know, um, there's the like cooking is such an interesting one, right? It's so gendered because cooking, at least as I grew up, was traditionally a more feminine role, except for grilling. Somehow you pull the grill out, it's outside. Now it suddenly becomes masculine, which is so arbitrary, right? Like it doesn't mean anything or make any sense. And I remember, you know, at the time we got together, we were actually roommates And so both of us cooked individually. And I remember there was sort of a kind of um, maybe turf war at first over like who's going to grill, like who's the grill master, quote unquote. And honestly, Garrett is a much better cook than I am. I'm the type of person who will get distracted by something and just go do something and else and then burn. So um, I much prefer to defer to him. But I, I could feel those tensions early in our relationship of kind of what's the prescribed stereotype? What am I supposed to do? And then how do you navigate that when both of you are men. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that because when I think about my future home and my future workplace, I want a space specifically for grilling. Like I don't grill a lot now. I don't cook a lot for the family now, but it's always been a dream of mine to have like this really nice grill set up outside my backyard, covered, heated, warm, whatever, like a ba- just full full spread outdoor kitchen um, because I, I, it's something I can see myself doing in the future and like using it as a form of meditation or, or calming down, slowing down. 
But when I think about cooking other things, I get a lot less interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's even interesting how we think of inside the home cooking is feminine, but then a lot of the top chefs in the world are men. Which sure. I'm like, how does that make sense? Right, which is, I guess, a huge problem in and of itself as well. But there's limited, you know, opportunity for a lot of women, but um, chefs. But yeah, like it's, you know, it really interesting the way that we socialize a lot of this. And I think to your point right now, it comes down to power right there, right? Like, you know, these top chefs who are making more money or working at top restaurants have more power. Um, and so, in this situation, our society is okay with women doing the legwork if it's not this kind of high prize power job. But the second that it is, it somehow gets to be more masculine. Yeah. And, and you said you've been working from home for seven years. What is it that you do on the day-to-day? Yeah. So kind of fun job. I help people to map their sensitivities to discover their purpose. So basically, I just kind of hang out with people. We go over their lived experiences. And then I have a system of boiling it down to five or six kind of themes or tensions that um, they're the best at in the world sharing, that they want to feel themselves, that you know, um, explains all their trauma and experiences and purpose. And then a lot of these people, I know I work with artists who build businesses using this, um, or entrepreneurs, of course, I work with, um, people who use it to understand like, um, kind of like love languages, relationship mm-hmm. counseling. So people can, I use with children sometimes, like people take it really far out places. It's kind of fun. Okay. Yeah. And what are the, what are you say are the first or the, the five or six themes that guide your life? Oh, me. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, aligned zany, free, unmistakable, successful, and vulnerable. And what do those mean to you? I've never heard some of those. I've never heard zany. And I think whether it was the first one you said remarkable. Unmistakable was one of them. Unmistakable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, A lot of things. You know, zany is this kind of um, really playful, youthful, goofy, kind of over the top, too much energy um, that I think I've felt a lot of shame for a lot of my life. And it's really, I've found the more I lean into it, it's my ticket to success. You know, it's something that Mm. makes me very different than others. It's something that people notice and are attracted to in me. And it's something that I really want light, fun, playful conversation. And, you know, for me, vulnerability is another one. Like every successful moment of my life has included vulnerability. I haven't had one moment of success that hasn't included me being incredibly vulnerable. Mm. And how does... Like, I always find it interesting. How does being in a same-sex marriage play into that vulnerability, I guess? Because there was a lot of shame around it, at least, you know, in the last 20 years, 10 years even. There's been a lot of conversation and growth, especially in America and Canada, Western societies about that. Like, how often does that play into that identity piece or does it at all? Sure. Yeah, I think it plays a lot into it. You know, it's something that um, our society has looked down upon and, uh, you know, um, pushed shame upon. And so where when Garrett and I first got together, that's my husband's name, um, we first got together, oh, neither of us had consciously been um, with a man or interested in the man to our knowledge. And so we had only dated women. And even for the first year and a half of our relationship, we had a um, non-exclusive relationship where we still had relations with women. And so um, there was a lot to work through there and figure out, you know, is this something we want is this you know how are we going to kind of step up the physical side of things do we want to be exclusive with one another is there shame or conditioning holding us back from this are there implied gender roles when it comes to sexuality in you know certain positions and things and i think a lot of that uh forces you to really confront some societal conditioning and um you know thankfully i have been going to therapy for years and um you know i like i said vulnerable is one of my sensitivities so 
Um, I don't know that our relationship would have survived had we not been so incredibly vulnerable and open and able to talk to each other about what's true, what's going on. Yeah. And I find it fascinating that there was like the first time you ever said that there was interest in another guy for both of you. Like, how did that even come about? Because typically people think it's, you know, you're attracted to men all your life or attracted to women all your life. How did that play out? This is, oh, this is a story. All right. So, you know, I, um, I had known Garrett, my husband now, um, in college and we were friendly and it just so happened that a few years after college, we ended up, uh, me, him and another roommate ended up living together. And at the time, our other roommate um, was my older sister's friend. She was a female and she had a boyfriend. And so she would spend half the week at um, the boyfriend's house. And I came down with a mysterious illness. I woke up one day and I was vomiting blood. And that didn't stop for two months. And so Mm -hmm. it was really scary and really hard at the time. And Garrett is a medical professional. And so he had to take me to the emergency room when I was, you know, hospitalized. He had to bring me to a lot of appointments. Um, There were a lot of periods where I couldn't get off the couch. I was in so much pain or I was, um, you know, couldn't leave. I would have, I had an accident at work, actually. I couldn't control my bowels. Um, And so I had to rely on him for a lot of things. And over the course of, you know, three or four months, uh, we started to develop a more intimate relationship that, you know, to me, Um, felt like it had evolved past what our friendship was. And so I noticed that I was feeling things I had never felt, but they weren't sexual or physical, but it felt emotional. And um, I think had I not been, you know, in the midst of a life-threatening illness, I probably wouldn't have the courage to be that vulnerable and speak up. But there I was, I could have died. So, you know, and Mm -hmm. I just told him, I said, I don't know what this means. I'm confused, but I feel like I'm feeling something happening here. Um, I don't know what it is. And he said that he kind of felt something too. And that led us on a um, many years journey that led to today, us being married. So so how would you define, I guess, I don't know, tell me if this is an appropriate question, but how would you define your sexuality then? Would you say that you're gay or or, or what? Yeah, great question. So I think it's one that matters a lot less to me than it used yeah. to. Um, you know, I think that I'm a lot more, you know, open to the idea of sexual fluidity. But, um, you know, I'm completely comfortable with any of those uh, titles. So bisexual, pansexual, um, gay, queer, they're all fine for me. Okay. Yeah, because I find that very, like, typically the the conversation revolves around, I, you know, I denied this part of myself. And then it just, then I became free and liberated to act in that way. With you, it's more of a you grew a really intimate relationship with a man and then you both saw it as something that you could explore and then explored it. But it wasn't like it was physical, lustful as it seems to be, or, or right. that's like the the grinder mentality, right? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Oh, I guess so. Um, but you know, uh, it's interesting too, because it took us, like I said, a year and a half to be exclusive. You know, this wasn't something we were sure. Um, you know, I will say we were very slow to be physical. It was slow to kind of adopt, um, maybe as fast as a relationship, uh, other relationships would. And part of that was just really checking in with ourselves and doing, you know, taking one step forward, two steps back and getting really comfortable. And I think that instilled more of a, um, that vulnerability, like that piece just keeps coming up in our relationship. And that's what's helped to be successful. Yeah. And, and I love that. And, and then you're always learning, you're always exploring. And, and you said, was like therapy part of getting into this relationship or like were you going to were you going to therapy before you met Garrett or was that 
So actually, no. And to be perfectly honest with you now, if I'm thinking of my real timeline, you know, I started therapy um, probably a few years into our relationship. But, um, you know, I'm also a person who's pretty big on self-work. So if it wasn't therapy, you know, uh, explicitly, I'm constantly, you know, having deep conversations with friends or journaling or, you know, seeking out some type of counselor. So throughout this process, I definitely had people I could rely on to um, kind of help me explore what was going on. What's your biggest journaling takeaway or, or, or tangible lesson that you could offer people? Uh, about journaling or about something yeah, I've about- learned from journaling? Oh, about uh, journaling, and then we'll get into something okay. that you've learned from journaling. We'll, we'll yeah. see what the latter one. So I, I try to journal daily. So I, I have quite a, a many years built up here. So I'll have to think about what um, I've learned. But I think journaling is just, it's one of those things that I have done it daily for so many years. And I will tell you, there's not been a day that I haven't been resistant to it. They haven't thought like, this is stupid. What a waste of my time. I'm not going to do this. Like, you know, nothing's going to change. And it's subtle. That's the thing about it. It's very, very subtle to just get your ideas out and see them in front of you on paper and have to really confront them and sit with them. And, you know, I journal for, say, 20 minutes. You get a page or a page and a half down. And um, you just kind of are really aware. And you can track yourself over time. I think that's probably one of the biggest things for me is I'll look at a journal from like a year ago and be like, wow, I was anxious and miserable a year ago. Like, I can't Mm. believe how much I've transition since then. And um, so it just kind of gives you that little signpost, a little landmark that you can kind of compare against. As far as my personal uh, biggest takeaway, you know, I've had some pretty big epiphanies from journaling. Um, Things with work, you know, I had to fire somebody once and I never thought that I would have fired this person. And it came out in my journal one day. I was like, shit, now that it's in my journal, it's going to happen soon. And so Mm -hmm. I think it just kind of makes me confront myself. I love that. I've re- so I asked selfishly because I've recently got into journaling and, and trying to figure it out. And I feel like this is the most consistent I've ever been. And it's because I'm putting no rules on myself of how to do it. And you know, I, I used to buy those ones that give you prompts and, and things. And I'm like, I don't like today's prompts. So I'm just not going to do it. And now it's much more free flowing because I'll literally write whatever comes out in my head. And it's more just like a word dump than anything else. And, and it is true. I, like I remember... I was doing inconsistent journaling, but I looked back at one of them a year or uh, two weeks ago or something from a year and a half ago before I had any podcasts. And I said, by September 2020, I'll have three podcasts, which I actually did. I just never remembered writing that down. But I, I looked after and I'm like, oh my God, I, this, is, this is true. And so now I'm a huge advocate for journaling. There's so many things have come true and, and it's awesome. It's, it's really, really awesome. I mean, I there's so many miracles to it. And I think that you hit the nail on the head for me. You know, I told you one of those six words I gave you was free, not going to work for me to follow guidelines or questions or rules. You know, I got to keep it free form. And I think um, not feeling tied down, you know, there are parts where I say, I hate this. This is stupid. Why am I writing? And like, you can just allow that to be part of it. So I think I always give that advice to people who are getting into journaling. Like, don't feel like you've got to write the great next great American novel. You don't have to write anything really. You can doodle for a little bit. You can say, this is stupid. I hate this. I hate this. I'm tired. I just want to go back to bed. You can do whatever the heck you want. Um, that actually allowing that to come forward is what lets the deeper stuff come out. 
hundred percent. Totally agree. Like sometimes I just put that like, Hey, I, I'm really upset. I want to cry right now or something like that. I don't cry, but I, I like, and to, to the funny point of, of not writing the next great American novel is uh, that's how Matthew McConaughey wrote, just wrote his latest novel is going through his 27 years of diaries or whatever, um, to, to write that novel. So that's pretty funny. <laughs> I don't doubt it. Yeah. Um, but you know, another conversation that we had was about claiming the femininity or, or claiming mm. your feminine energy. And, you know, as I've gone along this path, I'm not sure how big of a fan I am between feminine and masculine energies. I'm like, there's just us and then that's what we are. Um, but I still think it's it's kind of important to break those down. And what would you say to anyone who's, I guess, having trouble claiming what is seen as feminine? Well, we won't call it femininity, but maybe what's seen as feminine. Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, first of all, what you said was useful. I think we are just us. We are all our own brand. And that's why I use those, you know, six words I told you before. Everyone's got things, that are themes in their lives. Um, I know that, you know, traditionally and historically in different cultures, it's been useful to compare masculine and feminine energies, but it's very contextual to that culture, right? It's very contextual to that time. So it's fairly arbitrary, but sometimes it's helpful to people to begin to think about, especially if we're going to talk about masculinity today to kind of go to the opposite. Um, you know, for me, um, embracing, you know, thinking about what does my culture tell me about femininity at this time? And, you know, things like vulnerability, right? That's often seen as a feminine thing. Things like, um, intimacy, crying, you know, being really emotional, being really sensitive. Um, you know, there are some things that we equate with um, females, whether it's, you know, wearing certain clothing or being, you know, extra attentive to your fashion and um, kind of um, skincare, skincare <laughs> grooming, that type of stuff. Exactly. You know, we already talked about, you know, cleaning or cooking or, you know, some of these things can have a gendered aspect to them. And so I think for me, it's been a, a deconditioning journey of looking at what am I afraid of? Like what out there do I feel like, oh man, like if I am, I'm somehow less than if I'm seen as feminine in this way and I need to like defend that masculinity like they're polar opposites and like one can take from another, which is crap. Like we know that's not true. You know, um, I kind of compare it to stretching and strength training. Like I can do some strength training and stretching doesn't take away from it. It actually adds to it, you know? So I can both be really claimed to my feminine and really claimed to my masculine and mm. whatever that means to me. And I think that the more that I've stepped into some of these traditionally feminine things and said like, hey, I'm a pretty emotional guy. I want to own and claim that and not be ashamed. Or like, hey, you know, um, things in my relationship, I might be uh, doing the more feminine thing here and I'm going to totally own that. And that's awesome because it really feels good to me. And I like that. And the more that I've done that, the more I've actually felt confident in my masculine, because I think the thing is, if we're trying to assert our masculinity, it's like we haven't really claimed it, right? Like, because mm. if we have to prove it or prove like we can have more of it, that means that we somehow feel like it can be taken from us or that we can have less of it. And I don't think that really makes sense. We can't be more or less of ourselves. And so it just means we haven't really tuned into our own brand of masculinity or our own brand of femininity or our own brand of ourselves, which is what we've been talking about. And I just think about that. Like if I am worried someone can take my masculinity away from me or that being feminine somehow makes me less masculine, then I haven't really claimed my masculinity. I don't actually have a strong handle on it and I don't feel confident in it. But the second that I feel confident in it, I don't really care what anyone else does. Nothing anyone else does can take away from my masculinity. Nobody can take away from me. 
if you choose to be feminine over here and you choose to be masculine over here, cool, do it. You do your thing. I feel good yeah. about me. And the more that I step into all the parts of myself, the more confident I am in every single one of those parts. I, I That's probably one of my favorite quotes, Mike, I'll tell you right now, is what you just said. If you have to assert your masculinity, you probably haven't claimed it. That is great. I'm going to make that into a graphic. I have an audience <laughs> list that's listening. Find it on my Instagram at the imperfect pod. That's going to turn into a graphic for sure. Um, because that's, that's so true. Like I, I always find it's really funny when people are overly trying to defend their masculinity to the point where it's like so obvious that what they're trying to do is that they're, they're covering an insecurity. And I mean, we all do it. I, I'm, that's a normal part of life and I'm sure. not going to like say that's bad or anything at the same time it, it, that just points out that maybe you are insecure about how much of a man you are and i go through that all the time all the time i will tell you that right now i, I have conversations on this thing i get challenged and i'm like am i comfortable with my masculinity that's why i'm always like trying to put myself out into these different conversations with people that i never have met. Like I've had cross dressers on. Um, and I'm like, that doesn't really make any sense to me, but that is a challenge to me. Like that shouldn't affect my masculinity. That's why I want to have the conversations because I shouldn't feel threatened by that. I just want to have that conversation. Not that I would explore it cause it's not for me. Um, but I always find those conversations really interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, challenging, you know, our society, especially like you talked about in North America, you know, the society that we're raised in has a very narrow lens of what we say is masculine. And that, um, you know, I kind of like being in the same sex relationship because I feel like some ways the rules are thrown out for me. Like I don't have to worry quite as much. And I remember years and years ago before I was even with Garrett, um, I was on a trip to Israel actually. And there was uh, someone there who was gay and he said something to me. He said, you know, I would never want to be straight because it's so confining. Like you have to be masculine in a certain way and nobody cares what I do. So I can do whatever the heck I want. And I thought that was a really interesting quote. And I'm, I'm remembering it right now because um, I think that we make it so narrow and that might subjectively work for a few people. Sure. That might work for somebody, but it's very unlikely to work for the vast majority of people. And so now we're essentially telling people to, um, dilute who they are and kind of suppress it so that they can only be this one rigid aspect. And number one, we're losing a huge amount of diversity and intelligence and wisdom that we can get from a whole bunch of people. Um, and number two, it's just create shame. And so many people, you know, so much of that having to assert our masculinity is because we have shame over it because we don't feel like our brand of masculinity or our brand of femininity or our brand of ourselves is enough. We feel like, oh man, mm -hmm. I'm not like this, you know, uh, bodybuilder from Men's Health magazine, and I've got to be like that, and I've got to talk these ways, and like these action movies, and you know, talk about women these ways, and whatever we feel like that has to be, and um, that may not be right or true for us, and so I think it really limits us. And then here's the thing: if we're interested in dating or having friends or having anything in life, if we're a dumbed down version of somebody else, we're never going to be successful. We're just going to be a lesser version of them. But if we're our actual self, then people are attracted to us. People want to hang out with us. People are like, oh, you're cool and authentic and different. And like, yeah, I want to be around you. And I think that so many people are afraid, especially you know, men in this conversation, so many men are afraid to 
um, be those kind of outliers and those totally far out different things because there's so much pressure and I'm victim to it just as much as the next guy. So I'm not here to preach, but so many of us feel like, oh, I can only be this one thing. And I think, had I not gotten really, really sick, had I not, you know, had to question my entire career path, had I not ended up in the same sex relationship, I don't know that I would have had to face all of these questions, but I can tell you mm. with certainty that my life is a thousand times richer when I live it more authentically. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent respect that. And, you know, for me, it, I, that I always find it interesting because I, sometimes I ask guys on the on the show that I know are into photography or sometimes some type of art, and I'm like, you know, how does it feel? Like, how does photography affect your masculinity? And they say, what do you mean? And I say, well, you know, a, a lot of people think art is a feminine thing. You know, I do Sudoku's. I'm, I read. I'm kind of nerdy in that way. I, I call it grandpa energy, or at least my friends call it grandpa energy sometimes. And you know, I'm not trying to shy away from that side of me. I'm just trying to be, I, you know, I hate when I have to repress myself Mm -hmm. and, you know, when it comes to dating and dating games, you know, the texting, don't text back, wait. And I'm like, if Mm -hmm. I feel like I have to play in those rules, I know that that person isn't cut out for me. I know that that is not how I want to be in a relationship. So I will be me. And if it means weeding out these people, I guess I'm, I have to live with that because I don't want to be anything else other than myself. So I won't play these games. You know, I'm really glad that you brought up the uh, the dating games. I think this is interesting. Now, I, in full disclosure, I've never used a dating app before, so I, I'm not a good authority on this. However, you know, I think about this a lot in my work, and this is something I talk about a lot, that, you know, we all have had the experience of having coffee with a best friend. And it is so fun, and we are just grooving, and we're chatting, and hours fly by, and genius comes out of us, and we're just you know, riffing just like we are right now, right? We're like having a lot of fun. And then we've had the other conversations, the really structured formal ones where we're kind of like, did I say the right thing? Did I do the right thing? We're being very technical. Here's a tip for life that I've learned the hard way. If we ever feel like we have to be technical, we're not tapped into who we truly are. We're just trying to be someone else. You never Mm. have to try to be yourself. If you're trying, it means you're being somebody else. So, you know, that flow, that just kind of like, yeah, let me just show up and be myself and have coffee with a best friend feeling. Um, to me, that's what's going to attract in the actual partners and friends because I'm going to be that one day. This one day I'm going to drop the games. Hopefully, if not, I'll be pretty miserable. But hopefully I'm just going to get to show up and be myself. And I think about that every time I feel that energy. Now, maybe it's on dating apps for me, but anytime I'm talking to someone and I feel like i got to say the right thing and prove myself and be technical, if I'm doing that, I'm not tuned into who I am. And there I'm probably trying to assert something, maybe masculinity. Yeah, man, Mike, you are just dropping fire right now because I, I say the same thing. It's like at some point we're going to have to drop these games. So the person that sh- they got accustomed to is not the person that I actually am and which and then you come up with a whole lot of problems. And, you know, COVID's hard. Dating online is hard, especially during COVID. And there's a lot of challenges that come with it, but I'm still going to show up myself all the time. And I feel if I, I will express myself in that way. And I, I hope to, like I try to, when I, do those messages. I try to send them more in voice memos because I, I, I don't like texting sometimes. They just, the words come out wrong. Um, but yeah, like it'd be interesting to even hear how those games, are they still played amongst just like 
are they are they played in same sex marriages? I don't know. Like I don't know if you've experienced that with Garrett or hear anything. I mean, I, I hear things. I hear that you know, gay dating is horrible. I hear that straight dating is horrible. So you know, I hear a lot of complaints from my friends of any um, sexual orientation. But um, you know, I think with Garrett, like I said, vulnerability has been such a key to our relationship that I think the way it was structured, we kind of never could play games like that. It was kind of like either we're going to be really upfront or this isn't going to work. And so that mm-hmm. gave us an opportunity to, I think, create a, um, create a more f- uh, a structure that allows our relationships to succeed. And, you know, I'll give you an example. I will do things all the time that are like self-aware vulnerable. I'll say like, Garrett, I'm really mad right now and I'm annoyed and I don't want to see you and leave me alone for a little bit. But if you don't come check on me in like 10 minutes, I'm going to be even more mad. And so, you know, being really like honest and self-aware, even within the moment, even when it feels really vulnerable, because I do need space, but I also know that I'm going to be mad if you don't check up on me after a certain amount of space. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't it just be great if everyone had that much honest communication? Because one thing I get really annoyed at is that this is a stereotype that guys say about girls is that they're really bad communicators. And, and, you know, I think part of that is true. I also think men are terrible communicators too, because they also don't communicate that they're annoyed with the lack of communication. And like that is also feeds back into that, that whole loop, that constant cycle of, you know, she didn't communicate with me that she wanted me to check in on her in 10 minutes. So I didn't, I, why would I check in on her in 10 minutes? Have that conversation too, man. Like it's, it's that they, they both are a problem that you have to address. It's not just her. Like she might've started it, but you continued it just as much and you're both responsible for that. For sure. And I think that, you know, if we're within a lot of, you know, my own, you know, heterosexual relationships, I think there was also this kind of pressure that I felt like I wanted to uh, fix a lot of problems. I wanted to be the fixer. I felt like there was this suppression of my own emotions or own feelings to feel like, you know, you're like uh, the stereotype that women are more emotional. So therefore I can't be emotional. I can't show up emotional, which is crap. Like men show up, they may channel it differently. It might come across as anger, but men are plenty emotional. And so, yes. you know, I think that, um, there, and that's interesting too, the way emotions are even gendered, right? Like women are able to cry more. Women are able to be quote unquote hysterical, right? Which is incredibly sexist. Whereas men can be angry. That's the emotion that's appropriate for men. And it's, uh, really interesting because if you are a man who like my husband, he can watch a movie, uh, uh, inspiring or sad movie, and cry on the do- you know on a dime. Like he will, and if you're a man who is you know emotional in that way, it's really hard to uh, suppress it. And that's where I think we have a lot of anger issues come up in men. You know, men aren't able to express themselves fully, and so they have all of this repressed emotion that just can be unleashed the moment that they're able to express it. Yeah, I mean, I I talk about the link between anger and shame a lot, and as if like men can't feel. Uh, anxious or worried or sad that can trigger a lot of shame in them if they do feel those ways. And so they just get angry at themselves. They, they come out in, in anger and then they feel ashamed that they're angry. And then it's a full vicious cycle there. And another one that I, like, this is a conversation I get kind of frustrated with is everyone equates uh, sadness with crying. And I'm like, you can feel sad without crying. Like you can feel a lot of ways without crying, you can feel joyful and cry. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when, when I hear these conversations about men should be like emotional, I'm like men, one are emotional, but to 
you know, the reaction isn't a sign of a feeling of an emotion. Like I feel sad sometimes, but I don't cry all the time. I get teary eyed. I might, you know, get sleepy and tired and I, I go to sleep earlier. Um, and, and it's weird how even me, as I would say, I'm, a, I'm an emotional person. A lot of my friends would say I'm an emotional person. I, they can read me a lot of the time. I don't really carry my, like, I don't see myself as that emotional where I'd cry or get really angry. I'm very like kind of monotone, but I know what I'm feeling when I'm feeling it. And it just comes out in different ways. Like, I don't even know how to, how to express it. How, like expressing emotion, I would say is the problem. Not having them is, is more the problem. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think that at least from my experience, first of all, I think it's beautiful hearing this because I think again about this idea of we all have our own brand of a person, you know, our own, and that's what I try to do in my work so often is help people understand their own brand, whether that is, you know, being inwardly emotional, being externally and crying or laughing or whatever. And we're always going through this journey of understanding ourselves more. But I think it's also really interesting what you're talking about here, that there's two levels of our conversation. One is just having emotion in the first place and having awareness of the emotion. And then the other is being able to express that emotion. And by the way, you can have total awareness of your sadness. You can express it by taking a nap and you never have to cry. You know, expression doesn't imply any specific manifestation. And so I think mm -hmm. even this conversation just goes to how narrow the lens is and how we talk about these things like sadness equals crying you know um male emotion equals anger like we have a very narrow lens of how we view so many things and if you are even a step outside of that lane you feel like you don't fit in at all and you feel like you either ashamed for being outside and you've got to get yourself back inside that lane or you're gonna um not identify at all with traditional masculinity and mm -hmm. or maybe even reject that term and i don't think you know i think there's this whole conversation today about, you know, is there a um, quote unquote feminization of men, right? Like, are, yeah. you know, um, men not masculine anymore? And I think that just in, the, just in that language, we already have learned a lot about how our society views it. Because we view any femininity as anti-masculine, right? Like mm. if men are embracing or being quote unquote feminized, they're therefore not masculine. And my question is, a, can we expand both definitions? So, you know, and start to look at, could there be a lot of versions of masculine and feminine? And B, why not both? Why can't, why can't men be tapping into their feminine side, quote unquote, but also be super masculine and be really claiming their masculinity and not have to assert it and not feel like exploring any of their femininity takes away from their masculinity. If anything, mm -hmm. for me, it just adds to who you are as a person because you're being really honest with yourself. I don't yeah. know anyone that, I mean, I know people, you know, who like to dress and drag, like you said, I know people who, um, you know, are trans, I know people who are gay, who are cis, who are straight, who are, you know, across the board. I don't know one person in the entire world who has ever continuously explored something and promoted it that didn't feel good to them. So I don't feel like it's like, oh my God, men are suddenly going to start being different than they naturally are. That in my experience has never happened. What does happen is people have the ability to explore who they inherently are, and it's wider than that narrow lens. And if it's not for them, they might explore for a second and then stop because they realize, you know what? I actually don't like dressing in drag. Not my thing. I tried it once. Cool. Or you know what? Mm -hmm. I don't actually like action movies. Tried it once. Not my thing. Cool. Like that is so much more realistic. I think this fear we have that feminization is going to take away from masculinity speaks a lot more to our collective society's not claiming masculinity that we're you know we haven't even fully claimed it so we're afraid it's going to be taken away from us 
Yeah. Well, I going back to what you said at the very beginning is that we have this very narrow lens. Uh, are you familiar with Jay Shetty? Do you know who he is? I've heard him. Yeah, I know of him. Like that um, British monk guy uh, who, who writes those spiritual videos. I bought his book, Think Like a Monk, and, and the chapter I was just reading was – there was a quote basically about how um, sometimes when we feel an emotion, we just – equated to anger. But like, if you go deeper, what was the things that led to that anger? What there was, you know, maybe there was disappointment or anxiety or um, just this like stress that you put on yourself. There is emotions deeper than just anger. But I think that's where men have a lot of problems is, is that we just feel angry and we don't understand what was the reason behind that anger. We were hurt in some other aspect. Mm-hmm. We were hurt and we got emotional. And and why were you hurt? Well, I was, um, you know, they questioned my masculinity mm-hmm. or um, it could be like they, they had a, had a really key part of my life that, you know, I, I have trauma in, in relation to that experience. Um, and I think that was a really powerful thought to me and that it's, it's not, you know, anger is just a result of the hurt that you experience, but it's not actually the deep emotion that you actually felt. And and I think that's what a lot of men need to explore here is that feeling that got you angry in the first place. Because you, I don't think you just become angry. Like that that showed me that you don't just become angry. Like if someone cuts you off in front of a, a car or like on the road or something, you get angry. But what? why? Because that person didn't consider your what you were doing that day. They didn't consider how you would react to that. They were selfish. Therefore you're angry because they harmed you, right? Like you didn't just get angry. It was a result of something else. Well, I I love this because I think that this idea of just, you know, men get angry kind of uh, stops the conversation because it's just like, oh, well, that makes sense. So yeah, we're just done. Like it doesn't actually require the deeper emotional intelligence or the deeper kind of what's going on what's my awareness. And, you know, I often say I do purpose work because Purpose implies the why or the reason. I want to know if I feel something in any moment, if I was successful or I wasn't successful somewhere, I want to know why. That's what I'm always looking Mm. to. And this is for me about my sensitivities. So to use my work, just because I can't help it, the first thing I would do if I get angry is I say, okay, I'm angry. Was I not able to feel vulnerable or zany or free or unmistakable or successful? That starts to give me a guideline. It starts to say, wait a minute. What about why, like, why is this happening? Or do I feel overexposed and too vulnerable? Do I feel too zany and too much? Like that starts to give me language that I've created myself. So that's one thing about, you know, our work is we purposely, um, people create this language themselves. It's a very complicated process. But, um, Mm. But I think that what you're talking about here is many, you know, women are allowed to do deeper emotional work than men are in our society. And so we just kind of stop it there. I'm angry. I'm pissed. I'm fucking pissed. I'm done. Like that's mm-hmm. just the end of the conversation, right? And so, whereas, you know, for a lot of women, there can be this deeper analysis. And I mentioned therapy before. I think therapy and journaling such useful tools to start asking us those deeper questions, to confront ourselves. Because if we stop at angry, what we're saying is we're afraid of ourselves. We're afraid of the deeper parts of ourselves and we're afraid of our power. So how mm. could we ever claim our full masculinity if we're afraid of our power? You, man, just heaters. How can we ever claim our, our masculinity if we're afraid of our power? And that's something that a lot of these these Instagram masculine guys will say is like, find your inner lion, find your inner power. Like claim, like they use that those those king of the jungle analogies, which I find very funny. Um, yeah, <laughs> but you, you know, I think we've we've touched on a lot of really interesting 
themes here. And, and these are themes that I haven't even explored on the podcast yet. And, you know, I, I want to start doing book readings too, because there's a lot of things I, I, I learn in these books and that's a form of like audio journaling in a way. Um, but, you know, understanding these masculine feminine and how that all comes together into one human and the feminization of men, you know, I, I don't really see the argument, but I, I, I see this whole issue of um, lacking emotional intelligence, not just in the masculinity realm. I'm, I think we're, we're seeing it heightened in the, you know, it's currently the elections in America. Uh, by the time this is released, it won't be the the mm-hmm. elections anymore. Um, hopefully, we'll have a clear cut winner that we, don't, that we don't have now. Um, but you know, I think we're not seeing emotional intelligence anywhere. We're seeing people say, you know, if someone voted for Trump in their life, they're getting cut. Like, there's no empathy in a lot of ways, and everyone's yet talking like they're empathetic or they have a lot of tolerance. But I'm like. I don't think we are. There's so much nuance to everything. Political choices are not as narrow as we think. And I understand there's a line for people at the same time. I'm like, what are we doing here? Where, where we're not understanding, where we're not trying to get deeper into understanding one another. I mean, yeah, it's really, you know, we are in a really tough time right now. And I totally want to honor and appreciate that, you know, um, some of these stances are because people are being, you know, actively harmed and hurt. 100%. I get that, you know, for sure. But, I, you know, I think that just in general, there's this um, kind of knee-jerk reaction that a lot of us are having and having challenges to these. You know, one thing I love about our conversation is we get to have a long-form conversation. I love mm. getting to speak in more than just, you know, five-second sound bites. And it's not very interesting to me. I take some time to warm up. I got to get going here. You know, so um, – for me, I, I really like and appreciate nuance. And I you know um, feel like I have the ability to speak to people of very diverse backgrounds. You know, Through my work, I get to meet people of all different backgrounds, all different lived experiences. And um, just try, you know, it's fun because people tell me their whole lived experience. And my job is to map their sensitivities and be able to tell them the key themes to go build a business or help their relationship or whatever. And so I just get to listen to stories a lot. And I get to hear a lot of stories. I get to hear stories of sex workers and porn stars, stories of, you know, millionaire CEOs and artists and people of all different experiences. And it's really fun to just uh, get to hear and learn someone who has, you know, no one else um, walks through my eyes. I don't walk through, you know, and see through anyone else's. So it's really fun to get to have that for just a moment. Same. That's why I love podcasting because I get to connect with people like yourself and many different men and women now about their lived experiences. And, and, you know, with one, one episode I want to do is, is, or at least maybe by myself is discuss why white men vote for Trump in the first Mm -hmm. place. And, and, you know, as a white man, I disagree with the outcome, Mm -hmm. but I understand the rationale of getting there. I do because you know, if we play into a lot of this masculine ideology that's being spread right now is white men are the bottom of the food chain. No one wants to be them. They're the, they're kind of evil identity politics has told them that their voice doesn't matter. Um, and if you're not tuned in to the feelings that you're having about those conversations, maybe you understand why some people would go that way or express themselves that way and and feel like they're mistreated and and even though they maybe aren't but there's so much nuance to that conversation that you know 
I think conversations like these help. I don't think the conversation of you're a Trump supporter, you voted for Trump, I hate you, is it that's literally going to just push them further the opposite way and you the other opposite way. There's no meeting in the middle and in, in conversation around that. I know it's off topic politics, but you know, it's it's just what's going on exactly. right now. And, yeah, you know, there's, yeah. there's this great book that I really like. And this is a little off topic, but I think uh, I'm gonna tie it back and I'll get back here. So um Perfect. it's called um the sum the sum of small things, the theory of the aspirational class. And I can't remember the author, she's a sociologist. But basically, this book is about um, how 100 years ago, we had conspicuous consumption, right? Like you had a literal silver spoon in your mouth if you were rich. And people spent lavishly and they wanted to show that they were rich. Now, you know, after um, Industrial Revolution and, you know, leading up to today, things can be cheaply produced. And so you can look, you know, you can wear the same shirt as a semi-rich person or like a a knockoff that looks someone like it. You can have a big screen TV. You can have an iPhone. Like there is, there's less of a gap conspicuously on what people yeah. own. So the wealthy, what they're doing is inconspicuous spending things like retirement funds or travel or house cleaners or educational you know, private tutors or whatever. And on the surface, people look more similar, but it's actually creating more of a gap. And so, you know, one theory here is that Trump is actually a reaction to all of this because the elites have their own code and it's hidden. Nobody can see it. It's very subtle. It's, you know, and it, they talk about how um, these rich women, this one nail polish color that they all seem to wear and they all can see it. Or I can tell you, I live in a major city. If I see French bistro napkins, I know exactly what the restaurant's trying to tell me. I know when a restaurant's trying to tell me it's nice when it's not. There's these almost hidden codes. I know when I walk into a job interview the Netflix show that everybody's watching and what to talk about. There are these codes that become very hidden and inconspicuous. And so what Trump is the opposite. He's the most conspicuous person that there is. He is loud and he's flashy with his money and he is, you know, seen as gauche and tasteless. And so to a lot of people who feel like, um, and this book, one of the theories is a lot of people who feel like, you know, everything is just so hidden and unattainable. Trump is just out there and he's loud and proud and he's calling it like it is and showing like it is and screw all these rich liberal people who speak in code and are very secretive mm. um, and have their secret codes to one another that only they can communicate. We're going to talk up front. And so in some ways, you know, I think bringing it to masculinity, I think it's this interesting, you know, um, a lot of times when we talk about masculinity, we want this very like brash, in your face, obvious, like, you know, like I'm going to punch you in the face. Like it's very obvious. It's very in your face. There's very limited subtlety. And I'm not necessarily uh, defending these um, quote unquote liberal elites in this conversation here, but I think that um, it's an interesting theory to start thinking about how this country has developed and how on the surface thing, you know, quote unquote, there may be more opportunity, but underneath there's actually these layers coming in. Well, it's, it's funny that you talk about elitism because there's this, there's this book that I have in defense of elitism, why I'm better than you and you are better than someone who didn't buy this book. It's by Joel Steen or Joel Stein. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, but it's this whole book about how he goes to uh, these Trump voting lands and talks about them. And, and they're really... He's like, they're good people individually and as a community, like they care for their own. They're really nice. They don't care that I am a, a Jew, which a lot of them he says would, would care about. And it's just this really fascinating story about how, even though you meet these people, 
you know, we need to contain ideologies and policies to the elites. And I'm like, this is the exact reason, ironically, that the the so on so blue collar workers, lower class, um, as the elites would probably call them vote for Trump is because they don't see Trump as an elitist. They see him as one of their own. And exactly, exactly as you said, attainable. It doesn't matter what, you know, what, I don't know if it helps him or not, but his cases of, of being flawed, declaring bankruptcy, I'm not sure if that helps people realize that he is an attainable aspiration. Um, it, it, it it is masculinity ties into Trump, I think, a whole lot more than people think. And the nuance behind it and how people could vote for him in the first place is that he gives them a vision and a dream that they are something, that they they have a voice. And, you know, I'm I see both sides. I'm like, oh no, this is really and that's where the the the, the damage is. But I think like we're having right now, people can have that conversation one-on-one. When you take it to Twitter, when you take it to social media, you have that platform where people want to look smarter. People are virtue signaling or or trying to show off how intelligent they are and things get heated a lot quicker. And I think that's where the problem is. But I've never had a conversation one-on-one with someone that goes as as viral as someone just talking to their camera about how they talk to a Trump supporter, right? Like Though how someone would talk to a Trump supporter on TikTok and a one or or for, to their phone versus how they'd actually do it one on one is completely different, and it's and it's makes mainly for a show and like virtue signaling, in my opinion. I don't, and I, that's where the damage comes is, is then a lot of people watch it and like it and share it, and then everyone thinks everyone hates Trump people and and everyone hates Biden supporters, and I'm like, this is damaging people. We need to stop this. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that uh, that's accurate, that, you know, social media takes a lot of nuance out of conversations. And so it becomes really, you know, challenging. And I think that, you know, there is this association with Trump, you know, if we talk about, um, you know, the access Hollywood tape, of course, you know, him saying what he did, um, and also, you know, talk about the association with some of these alt-right groups, whether it's the Proud Boys or whatever, you know, there is this idea of masculinity and brotherhood and fraternity and kind of, you know, reclaiming masculinity that is so deeply woven into his narrative. And I think that, um, you know, there is a hunger. I think a lot of people are hungry for masculinity right now. And I want to be clear about that because I think sometimes the answer people think is, well, people need to just embrace their feminine side. And that's not what I said even since the beginning. And I want to be clear, I'm talking about embracing embracing femininity and masculinity so that I can be all of myself. And I think Mm -hmm. that hunger for masculinity, people are trying to claim it falsely outside of themselves by this bravado, by this asserting, rather than actually internally claiming who we are, including our brand of masculinity. It might not look Mm -hmm. like yours. How I feel masculine might look nothing like you. And that's the point. I can't claim something that isn't mine. So if I'm trying to be you, I'm trying to be Trump or whatever, um, it's never going to feel real to me. And I'm always going to have to assert it, always going to be more dominant, tougher, and more violent. But if I know it with certainty and I really claim it, you can't take it away from me. It doesn't matter what you say about me. It doesn't matter what you do because I feel confident and secure in my own masculinity. Yeah, it's so true. And, and I'm a part of some of some men's groups like that are followers of these big masculinity podcasts. And I, I'm just in them to, for talking points and, and kind of grow my own following. But a lot of them ask, you know, what are your manly plans for this weekend? And most of them have to do with like, hunting, mudding, some like stereotypical kind of thing. And I'm like, I would never perform my masculine. I would try it, but I wouldn't continually perform my masculinity in, in that sense. 
and because it's not me. And, and, and I feel like so many people have this kind of conversation that they have to claim something that's beyond them be, to, because that is what being a traditional man was. And I'm like, listen, we've moved beyond a culture where we need to hunt to get food. You can go to a grocery store, man. You don't need to do it anymore. Like that's not what mass being a man is. Uh, but we try to, and then they're like, yeah, it's about skill growing and, and using that language that if you, if you're not trying to grow your skills and defend your family and, and learn how to provide on your own, then you're no man. I'm like, man, we, because we don't need that anymore. <laughs> like we're, we're beyond that. And I think, you know, there are those that latent misogyny in there that, you know, uh, provide for your family and defend your family. Like, you know, let's say that if it's a heterosexual relationship, that your wife is incapable or, you know, the other people involved are incapable of this. And that's not really necessarily true. I know a lot of people who, where the wife makes a lot more money than the man. And for some cases, the man has been insecure about it. And I said, Hey, you've got to, you know, shape up like good for you that you have this um, successful relationship. And in other cases, you know, in many cases, they're very supportive. And I think that we need to, you know, this idea that like a man is the provider, a man is the, you know, the protector, a man is the defender. And we see that language used a lot of times um, in cases of violence or to defend certain things going on here. And I think that, you know, I love that you said that, you know, that's not hunting isn't your thing and not your brand of masculinity. And to be fair, it is some people's. So some men, that's totally their thing. And that's awesome. More power to you. But again, we've got to widen that lane because that lane is so narrow and it's not serving the majority of people. And so if it works for you, that's awesome. But if it doesn't work for you, you're trying to be somebody that you're not. And you're going to get more and more aggressive about, you know, um, proving it and pushing it in people's faces because you never really claimed it. So the second that somebody slights you in the smallest way, or the second that somebody questions, you know, oh, you're not, you don't really watch sports that much, or you don't really do that. Like you're going to get really defensive and maybe even violent. And I think that's the place that we have to be clear about is like when you're being yourself, doesn't matter what people say. If somebody says like, Hey Mike, you know, like, I can't believe you don't hunt. How lame. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't really like hunting. Like, I, I don't yeah. really care. And if that's the basis of our friendship, it's not really a good friendship. We probably shouldn't be friends yeah. here. So I think that in all honesty, w- what we're really trying to do is just claim who we are and be ourselves, our own brand of ourselves. And I keep coming back and stressing that because we have to stop pretending that we're somebody else. We're never going to be able to claim who we are um, if we're trying to be somebody else. You never have to try to be yourself. If you're trying, it means you're being somebody else. Yeah. And, and I totally agree. And, and the, and the people that think that, you know, you're not a man if you don't hunt. I mean, I just didn't grow up in a culture that hunted. I, I'm from the suburbs of Canada. All right. That's not, well, you, you don't even see deer around here. Wasn't something that my dad was interested in. So we didn't do it. Um, even going back to the gender roles, I know this is a part of the conversation we wanted to have earlier. I just totally missed it, but you know, you're married now. Um, and what was a, planning a wedding like as a in a same-sex marriage? Oh, awesome. So easy. So, you know, I know me, very few people say that. And to be fair, I think it's part of my personality and it's part of I run a business. So I'm used to launches and spreadsheets and stuff like this. Wasn't that complicated. And so we had no expectations on us. And that made it really, really fun because like, you know, do we get married in a church? Who do we walk? Like none of that. I was like, I love Aruba. I've been going to Aruba since I was born. We're getting married in Aruba and we're inviting 50 of our closest friends and family for a three-day party. And so we had this amazing three-day event in Aruba. We got to have an at-home party that was a casual backyard party. 
And then there, we did whatever we wanted and nobody cared. There was no pressure on us. Um, you know, we chose to walk our moms down the aisle, both of us. So we didn't decide, you know, one person's going to be standing and one person's going to be walking. We were just both going to walk and we flipped mm -hmm. a coin for who would walk first because we couldn't care less. And, you know, it, we got to choose what clothing we wanted without the kind of traditional, um, men's clothing and women's clothing of a wedding. You know, I mean, we wore, um, pants and button down shirt and, um, it was just really fun and easy. And I watch a lot of my heterosexual couple friends planning weddings and it's so stressful and there's so many especially for the bride i mean there are so many layers of things they have to do and people they have to appease and there's the bridal shower and the engagement party and like a million things i just think because we're already out of the normal traditional um, ways of being um, people just didn't care like there wasn't that pressure on us there wasn't like well one family pays for the wedding and the other pays for the rehearsal dinner or any of that kind of crap we just said hey guys we're having this party we're gonna pay for it. Nothing you say is going to change our mind. So if you want to give us money, cool. And if you don't want to give us money, we'll find a way to pay for it. Cool. Like we don't want you to have a say over what we do. And I think, yeah. I don't know that I would have had the confidence to do that if I were in a heterosexual relationship. Well, it's interesting because a lot of it comes into a play. There's gender norms. There's, uh, you know, bridal expectations. There's family expectations. There's the cultural expectations. Like there's so many layers of a heterosexual relationship that you know, I think when you enter it as a same sex, it might just throw all that out the window in the first place. And um, when I think about my future wedding, you know, my my philosophy is I don't want to go into debt for a one day party when fifty percent of these things end up in divorce. So, like, you know, I, I want to buy, I want to have a house to go to after, and I want to have my closest friends and family there. I don't want to have any oddballs. I don't care about your dad's best friends, mm -hmm. young kid, <laughs> right. Like, like I, I don't care about them and I'm not, I, I don't want to pay for them if I have to. So I, there's like, everyone just th feels like they have to be involved and everyone thinks that they have to be part of this beautiful experience. And, and the bride, you know, I, I want to give my bride obviously the wedding of her dreams when that happens at the same time, I want to be as try to get, be as reasonable about it as possible where it's like, listen, we don't, we are, I want us to be us and I don't want us to go out of our way to feel like we're not us just to appease the other people. You know, I wouldn't, I would not invite some members of my own family if, if it meant having a great day just because, uh, you know, it, it's my day. <laughs> I get, I mean, we only had, like I said, 50 people. We had six friends. That was it. Six friends. And the thing I will tell you is that what you just said is the best advice I could give anyone for a wedding. I just want it to be us. Like I want to feel like us because you know, all, I've had a lot of friends get married, you know, some of them paid astronomical amounts of money and maybe regretted it. Some of them had really casual backyard things and the weddings I've enjoyed going to the most and the weddings that have seemed happiest for the couple um, were the ones that just felt like them. Like our wedding, we didn't have dancing at our wedding because we don't really dance at wedding. What we did have was a three course meal at a really nice like private little garden because we really like food. And that was something that was important to us. But I, I want to say something here because I don't want to give the impression that like being same sex, like throws everything out and life is so easy. You know, mm. I think there are these interesting moments. Like I think Garrett's family, Garrett's mom is a little bit more traditional. And I remember that, you know, one of her early questions was, um, who, who's the woman? 
in the relationship. And Garrett's like, mm. uh, neither of us. That's the point, right? And yeah. so, you know, one year for Christmas, and she's evolved, and I want to give her a lot of credit, but one year for Christmas, she gave me um, a cloth to clean stainless steel and said, oh, you're going to love it, Mike, to clean your fridge. And I was like, Garrett, take this. Like, I don't, I don't do anything in the kitchen. I don't know what to do with this. And, you yeah. know, so I think that where we may have negotiated a lot of these things, um, people outside of us in our life haven't necessarily had to do that deeper thinking or deeper work. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been really challenging. And I think even for them to think like, oh no, my son does some feminine things. Like there's kind of that judgment from the outside or, you know, my son should do the more masculine things. And so I think that we've had to also navigate that. And I'm proud of all of my family. I think everyone's been so amazing and really grown. And um, best, best, best is my grandmother, who's 88 years old. She's from Italy. She uh, was raised in a village. She did not know anyone but Roman Catholics. Um, She, you know, when my mom, my dad married a Jew, that was a big deal. So that was already, (laughs) we weren't christened. Oh, God, that was the worst. My sister had a baby out of wedlock. Like, come on, we are ruining her life here. So, you know, we were nervous about telling her that I was with Garrett. And we um, we didn't tell her until we bought a home because we bought a one-bedroom. So we couldn't really hide that one, right? We were both living together in the one-bedroom. And so my dad told her in Italian um, that we were together, and he was really a little bit nervous. And her response was, they paid what for a one-bedroom? And that was their only response. And so... Um, You know, I think that um, to your point about, um, you know, talking to people and having nuanced conversations and not just on social media, I think people can grow and evolve and learn from others' lived experiences. And I'm so proud of my Nana. She's 88. She still speaks with a very strong accent. And she has grown, I mean, from the point where she wouldn't talk to my dad when he was marrying my mom to a point where she was so chill about me marrying a man. Um... You know, it just really speaks to when we, when we, I think when we've claimed ourselves to the best of our ability and we're willing to have these really hard conversations, um, we can, we make room for miracles. Mm. And I, I love that. I think that's really true. And it's awesome to see that, that growth. And, you know, you hope that people don't have to experience getting kicked out of their homes anymore because of their sexual orientation as, as history has shown and um, that there's little moves towards it. One last question I wanted to ask you before I, I, I let you uh, promote yourself is I'm really curious now. I don't know if we have time for this, but what, how do you run people through finding what their six key themes are? Five or six oh, key themes. Great question. Okay. Can so, we do uh, so real quick or no, we can do a little, little thing real quick. I mean, I, this is like a two and a half hour process, so I'm going to try okay. to keep it brief here, okay. but you know, um, <laughs> So I actually, before I do that, I will say on my website, we have a free 36-minute training that's going to go a little bit deeper than I even going right now. It's a lot better because I've kind of got it tightened up as much as possible and there's a worksheet. So if people, if you, um, Luke, or anyone listening wants to go check that out, it's totally free. You can go check it out anytime. Um, And that's at mikeimle.com slash map. Really easy to remember. But um, all right. So I want you to, Luke, first, now I'll ask you questions. You can kind of answer them on the spot if you'd like, and everyone can kind of play along. Um, think, tell me three jobs you've had. Okay. So I was a Don at university. So okay. residence life uh, Don, which means I was an upper year living on uh, with first years, making sure that they had a, had a good first year transition. Um, I had a short 
two-month stint at a startup as a marketing coordinator. Okay. And then uh, my current job is I'm a conference producer where I recruit senior executives from Fortune 500 companies to come speak at events. Cool. Okay. Cool. So when you were this Dawn, what do you think that you made people feel? Like what, like, did you make people feel safe? Did you make them feel empowered? Did you make them feel connected to you? Did you make them feel, um, I don't know, uh, at home? Like, what did you make? Give me three things you made them feel. Uh, well, the first word, word out of my mouth is going to be safe. Um, and then I would say connected is another really good one. It was a really close knit floor. Um, and then I think I made them feel respected too. Or is cool. it how they made me feel? No, no, that's good. How you made them feel. Okay. So safe, yeah. connected, respected. Awesome. So um, the second job was marketing assistant for a startup. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Marketing, marketing coordinator. Coordinator, coordinator for a startup. Um, so at this job, three things you made people feel. Ooh, this one was a rough gig. I, okay. I'd say frustrated. I'd say frustrated. <laughs> so, so it's okay. Let's, let's spin this. Take a pause. Um, and what did you try to make people feel? Not what you felt. What did you try to make people feel like? What was your intention, even if you didn't succeed all the time? My intention was uh, to make them feel like they were growing as a startup. It was like six people all my age um, welcomed because we had some high school interns as well that were working with us. And um, innovative, I guess. I I wanted to start a podcast with that company. That's really where a lot of this podcast came from. I love it. I love it. Okay. And then um, in that final job, which was um, the current job, a conference producer, um, what do you make people feel? Whether it's the CEO, um, whether it's the attendees, whatever, do you make people feel? Uh, I think I make people feel listened to. Mm-hmm. Um, I love connecting with these senior vice presidents. I love getting them on the phone, chatting with them. You know, 10, 10 minute calls often go 20, 30 minutes. Um, my coworkers, when we were in the office, I was kind of like the the office clown. I made people feel really welcome and enjoyed being there. Um, and then I, I like making people feel like smart and that, you know, respecting that, 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 that idea was their own and, and teamwork was a huge one. I really wanted to know that. I want to know that we were a team. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So I would not give you so much insight right now, but what I just want everyone listening and you can do this yourself um, to write down, if you do that training, it's going to go a lot deeper, but it will ask you some of these questions. Um, I want everyone to notice how many times you used welcomed. You talked about, you know, welcomed at the, um, uh, you didn't talk about the dawn job, but we've got that sense. You definitely talked about in the last two. Um, you certainly talked about, you know, listened to, respected multiple times. We heard those words. Of course, I'm thinking about connected and how that's related here. Um, and I'm thinking about this kind of playful energy that you were very like playful and fun and goofy and you love um, chatting with people. You love listening. So already we're starting to see that the same themes are coming up in multiple jobs. Now, one more thing I'll ask, well, two more things I'm going to ask you. One is I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think of the happiest day of your life that comes to memory, the happiest moment of your life that comes to memory. Uh, my brother's wedding. Okay. And at that, on that day, at that moment, what did you feel? Give me six things you felt. Uh, pure joy. Mm-hmm. Um, like pure joy. Um, I, I would say happy too, because I think happiness and joy are, are two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, ooh. I, I felt welcomed. Like that mm-hmm. was one thing. Mm-hmm. I, it was just an enjoyable, enjoyable, fun night. Um, does intoxicated count? Cause I was pretty yeah. deep on the alcohol. 
<laughs> we'll say uh, was elated ecstatic somewhere elated, in that. Yeah. <laughs> um, hyper. Okay. And then uh, um, just like satisfied, satisfied and peaceful. I'll, I'll okay. take away hyper and satisfied and peaceful. Satisfied and peaceful. Like. Perfect. Now I want you to close your eyes again. And I want you to think of a challenging or traumatic moment that feels safe to think about. So it does not, nothing that's unsafe, nothing that's going to re-trigger you, but some really challenging moment in your life. You don't have to tell me what it is if you don't want to, but you're welcome to. And I want you to, so A, if you want to tell me it, you can. And B, tell me what you felt in that moment. Six things. Mm. Um. There's a couple. Most of them are from Donnie because that was a pretty stressful job. Uh, but I'll remember. I remember one. There was an. There was a time when I had a, a friend reach out to me. Uh, I won't get into it because it's someone else's story yeah, mainly. But I was worried, worried, anxious, stressed, terrified, um, unsure. Okay. And uh, fearful, I guess. So worried, stressed, anxious, unsure, and fearful, and terrified. Um, those what you felt. What did you want to feel? If someone had a magic wand and they could have made you feel the exact thing you wanted to feel, what would you have rather feel than worried, stressed, anxious, terrified, all those? Um, safe. Um, joyful. Um well, I, I really wanted to help them. So securing, I don't, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. the right word. But, um, I, I wanted to feel joy. I love, the, I love feeling joy, and I wanted to feel calm and protected. Awesome. Okay. So already, you know, and I think you get where this is going, everybody. But you know, we've heard welcome so many times. We've heard safe so many times. We've heard connected. We've heard joy. Um, we've heard this kind of. Uh, playful sense of humorness come up a few times here. You know, we've heard, uh, again, secure, safe. We can kind of think about that similar tension. So right now, we've already got themes that we're seeing you've always shared in your jobs, things that you felt in your happiest moments when it was a good container for you, and things you felt the opposite of in some of your worst moments in life. And, you know, you know, I- I'm good, but I'm not that good. So I've rushed it here. But yeah, yeah. I, I'm telling you, if everybody wants to, anyone who wants to go check it out, um, that 36-minute training, it's pretty brief, but you've got a worksheet and that will go deeper. And then if ever you want to go even deeper than that, you can kind of find out how over there. But um, yeah, is that helpful for you to think about? No, I think so. And, and, and you know, when I think about, it kind of comes back to how I think about the jobs I want, which is... A lot of people pigeonhole themselves into like marketing mm-hmm. and it's like, well, you don't really like marketing. What do you like about marketing? Exactly. Is it the analytics? Is it the communication? You know, for me, I've realized that every single job I've liked is the communication and the ability to share people's stories. So one of the reasons, you know, I, I have three different podcasts. One's about hockey, one's about business, and one's about masculinity. You know, masculinity, uh, hockey, and business are, are three important, you know, talking points in my life I think are really interesting. But the real reason behind why I do it is that I get to communicate with awesome people like you and share your stories and literally just talk to people from around the world. Like that is communication, right? Is the reason. And the with each one, 
I want to make you feel safe. I want to make you feel secure. I want to make you feel welcome to share these, mm-hmm. these hard ideologies and ideas because I know it's, the, I know these are heavy conversations. That's why I do the initial conversation that we did before this mm-hmm. whole recording minutes sure. was to ensure that you could feel that way in preparation for this. And then I think that allows us to have more nuanced conversation about the politics that, you know, I didn't, I didn't plan for that. I'm just like, you know what? I think because we have, we've built something here, we can have that conversation. You know, I'll tell you right now, all I, I have a Mason jar in front of me. I know uh, people listening can't see it, but I drink out of big Mason jars of water because I love water and I'm really lazy. So I don't want to fill up my cup all day long. Like I just want to fill it up once. And I tell you this, right? I love it. You got a big cup too. And I say this because even though I've got my big Mason jar full of water, if I were at a friend's house and they had tiny little cups, I would still drink the water because what I really want is the water, not the container. All of our lives, Mm. what we are doing is pouring water from one cup into another. Some are going to be really big and can really hold us. Some are going to be really small and can't hold all the water of who we are. From your three podcasts of hockey and business and masculinity, those are just different cups. You're pouring the same water between the cups. Now, most of us, when we think of purpose, we think of purpose as a relationship or a particular job, right? Those are just cups. It's the water that's the purpose, the why. Why does this feel good? Why did this work out, but that didn't? Why is this job so good for me, but that one isn't? Why did this relationship work, but that didn't? And now you know what a good relationship for you needs to feel like. It's got to feel welcoming. It's got to feel safe. It's got to feel connecting. It's got to feel joyful. It's all of these things. And so for me, it just starts to give us a language. I mean, we're talking about the brand of your masculinity and femininity, the brand of who you are. It gives you a language to say, hey, wait a minute. My type of masculinity is vulnerable. You know how fucking courageous it is to be as vulnerable as I am? Yes, that's my brand of masculinity. My brand of masculinity is to be zany and crazy and fun and all over the place. My brand is to be aligned and spiritual. And it creates this level of confidence because nobody in the world can have the masculinity that I can. Nobody can do it like I can. You can try to copy me. You will never have my essence. And that is how we claim. Mike, that is a fantastic way. That was like uh, a preacher leaving like the drop on the mic at the end. Um, but in terms of you, you kind of pitched your website already. And and I think that tied in really well to, to end it. That was everyone that was off the cusp. That was not planned at all. I just want you to know that I, I always love kind of adding those little things in if I can, but where can people find you? Where people, can people connect with you and, and find out more about what you're doing? Yeah. So mikeiamelli.com slash map is probably the best way. It's that 36 minute training. You can go get a sense of it. Um, you can download the worksheet and find out some of your sensitivities yourself. Um, on that website, you can figure out how to email me and contact me if you need more info. I'm just recently dipping my toe into being active on Instagram. I'm not great at social media, but you can go check me out over there if you'd like. We're actually doing a really fun class. I don't know when this will air, so this might be irrelevant, but we're going to run it again called um, uh, Discover Your Brand in Bed and Helping People to Begin to Think About Intimacy and Sexuality. So if that's Mm. something of interest, I'm talking about it all over Instagram. Perfect. And what's your Instagram handle? It's just Mike Iamelli. So. Okay, perfect. I'll make sure to toss you a follow tonight too. Cool. Um, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed our conversation um, and I look forward to releasing this. I, I don't know when it is. I might move yours up because it's I, I enjoyed it that much. Um, so I'll keep you updated. I am weeks and months ahead, I think, sure. but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know as soon as I can because I thought this conversation was very fruitful. Yeah, no stress whenever. It was really a pleasure. So thank you, Luke. It was a lot of fun. Awesome.
Thank you, Mike, so much. And everyone, go check him out. Go try to do that 36-minute workshop, you said? Yep. 36 um, minutes. 36 minutes. So try to keep it as brief as possible, make it easy for you guys. Everyone, that's like one and a half episodes of The Office, and we all know that The Office is kind of overrated anyway. So, you know, on we're in quarantine. Go, go to do some self work if you can i'm a huge fan of it mike's a huge fan of it so out of respect for both of us i'll make sure to link it in in the description below as well but mike thank you again sounds good thank you everyone so much for listening to this week's episode of the imperfect pod if you would like to find out more about today's guest you can connect with him on his website mikeimle.com uh, which is linked in the description below as for the worksheet that he mentioned and the little personality characteristic walkthrough he did with me. You can find that at mikeimle.com backslash map. He's also on Instagram at mikeimle. All that is linked in the description below, as is his book. If you enjoyed the episode, again, it would mean the world to me if you took that 30 seconds to press the follow button, subscribe, and leave a review. Also, about the Facebook group, if you're interested in joining it, uh, I have past guests uh, and lots of my friends in that group uh having conversations and and continuing that relationship so if you're interested please follow along in that journey and join the group in the link in the description